Welcome everyone to the Maple Leaf Hangout. This is Michael Langlois from Vintage Leaf Memories. Uh, it's been a while since we have uh, aired a program here on the Maple Leaf Hot Stove site and, and hosting this particular kind of, of hangout discussion. Uh, obviously a lot has happened in the past uh, couple of months and we'll try to cover off some of the topics that relate to the, the current situation involving the Maple Leafs. Uh, our, our guests tonight, or co-hosts, if you will, uh, Elliot Sucucci. Elliot has been on before. He's uh, a, a leaf observer, for sure. Uh, a lawyer as well. He can bring some of that expertise to our discussions tonight, uh, because the the Leafs is is everyone listening uh, is no doubt aware is that they're involved in a in some sensitive situations and and so um, in broad terms Elliot might be able to to talk about uh, media and and relationship with with an organization like Maple Leaf Sports and, and Entertainment and the players etc uh, as can Jonah Siegel who has since 2008 been hosting the Toronto Sports Media website uh, gentlemen welcome Elliot and Jonah to you as you well may. thanks thanks for joining us tonight my pleasure. Listen, nice absolutely, Jonah. Let me let me bounce, and you know, we'll we'll hopefully make this for our audience as as sort of engaging and interactive as as we can. Uh, the easiest thing in the world is to is to dump on the Leafs uh, during seasons like this. Uh, so I don't think we need to do a big. Uh, I was going to say post mortem. I guess it's not over yet, although it certainly feels like the season is over from a Leaf perspective, since everybody's talking about tanking and winning the lottery in the draft. But I'll just pose this question, uh, Jonah, to you first, and then to Elliot before we get into some some of the current machinations involving the club. Uh, Jonah, observing the Leafs as you do, uh, is did you expect this kind of season? Out of the Maple Leaf franchise, Jonah, or is this, you know, honestly, kind of a shock to you? What What's your thought? Now, this is. I can actually back it up. This is something that I predicted very early. Uh, I have a bet with a friend of mine that I tweet about all the time, uh, where I bet him very early on that I wanted to make the Leafs would be in the lottery, and and said we just we agreed on it. They weren't going to make the playoffs. From my perspective, I think that uh, what happened to them in Boston, the big collapse wasn't the calamity. The fact they actually made it into the playoffs was the calamity, because I think it was a complete. Um, I, I think it was a complete myth. I think that they they got to where they were based on a shortened season. I don't think they have the talent, and I don't think they have the character uh, to be a successful team. So I'm not the least bit surprised. Uh, Elliot, from your perspective, has has the way things turned out this season, and I think we would all agree, what happens in the next, I don't even know how long is left in the season, three or four weeks? I stopped counting. Uh, that doesn't matter so much. Uh, is the surprise not a surprise to you? I think that it's it's a surprise. I mean, wh where the club was when Randy Carlyle was coaching was kind of where I thought they'd be, an up-and-down club uh, that was capable of getting hot because... You know, I, I kind of disagree with my co-host here. I, I think that the club does have a lot of talent. I, I don't disagree about whatever the leadership issues are or character, that there is something deeply wrong in the core of that club. But I think there's a lot of talent there. Um, and my expectation was that they'd get hot, they'd get cold, and overall have, you know, a, 
plus eight, plus nine record at the end of the year, and, and maybe maybe fight it out for a second wild card spot. So I'm expect I'm surprised at the the sheer magnitude of the collapse. Although I guess I'm a bit of a sucker given that this is you know kind of an annual tradition this this magnitude of collapse. But I really did expect a little better. Yeah, we we've seen interestingly almost each of the past well uh, three four I don't know how many years. Uh, certainly going back to the Ron Wilson years, Elliot, we saw some early season, um, you know, we can say it turned out to be a mirage, but there were times that the team was actually well positioned by, say, Christmas time. And a time yeah. looked like a fast team, an explosive team offensively, a team that could, you know, yes, relied on good goaltending and was, you know, uh, didn't have the puck enough, but they, anyway, all of that stuff. And and yet it, it you know sort of came home to roost by the in the second half of the season. But we have seen this movie before. I mean, it, it has happened. The team does look like they have some talent. Yes, leadership issues for sure, team identity issues for sure, coaching issues in the minds of some absolutely. Uh, but wow, I mean, it is it it has become predictably sad that as the season has gone on, somewhere along the way something in hockey terms horrific happens to this club and they go completely off the rails in a very weak conference which should be up for grabs every year for a middle-ish team like Toronto. It's really it's tough to put your finger on but it, it, from my perspective there's something in the psychology the psychological makeup of this team that at the first sign of adversity it just seems to crumble and, and that adversity normally seems to come post Christmas break when the level of play gets ramped up just a bit when you're on the other side of the hill and you're looking at the playoffs. Yes. Teams start to hit harder and play closer, and then something bad happens. They lose a couple games, and it explodes because they don't have whatever it is, that intestinal fortitude to kind of hunker down as a group and come through it together. They, they seem to play as a bunch of individuals, and I know players on the team have alluded to that this year, um, and it seems to bear out. It, it's interesting you say that, so I'll, I'll throw it over to Jonah then. Jonah, I mean, who are, and again, I'm not in the room. I have no idea. You know, I've observed this team since the late 1950s, and and I've seen, you know, guys who I thought as an outsider looking in, Jonah, were very good leaders, whether we want to talk about a Gilmore for that, you know, two-year period or Sittler, at, at, you know, in the 70s, at, you know, George Armstrong in the 60s, whatever. I mean, there certainly have been, and, and much quieter leaders too, guys that, that aren't as well-known but, but do a great job. Who are the leaders on this team, Jonah? I mean, can you name anybody who you think has stepped up as a, as, a, as a character, whether they're just a role player or one of the stars? Can you name anybody on this team that from your observation you think has stood up? Well, it seemed, to me, it seemed to me that they, and they just traded him away that Santorelli was playing a little bit of that role. But, you know, from my perspective... The, the proof was in, in the proverbial pudding in that they have not, if you look at the current roster, there's maybe one player, two at the most, who you could say who are properly placed on the right position. I don't mean center versus defense. But Kessel is a first-line player. Bernier might be a first-line goalie. Other than that, no, nobody has ever, nobody is slotted properly. And that's why it's just been so apparent to me is that I think that I don't think Dion Phaneuf is a bad defenseman, and I don't think that Tyler Bozak is a bad centerman. Uh, I just don't think they're properly slotted. I don't think they've been set up for success. So I think all of the, the crumbling is, is pretty predictable. But 
there's no question that there has been a, a seismic gap in maturity and leadership in that room that when that, that first whiff of adversity comes, they get blown over pretty quickly. Well, does this tell us then that, that for example, to bring it to the current week's you know, situation with, with Kessel's, uh, you know, I, don't, I don't want to call it an outburst, or his, his sort of planned discussion with the media, standing up for FNAF, et cetera. Uh, and he said, you know, basically, you know, Dion didn't, didn't you know, create this team and, and he, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, the, the things you're pointing to, players being miscast, it, that's a management function because if, for example, they have not surrounded FNAF or Kessel with the kind of complementary players required to, to help them be, be successful, is that on the players or is that really on management for not having given them the supporting cast and asking Tyler Bozak to be a number one center when he might be a number three center? Whatever. I'm just using those as examples. So from my perspective, it's, it's rotten from the top down. And I think that... You Are know, you pointing at ownership then? Are you you're starting... I think it starts there. Well, I think it starts there. I think that, it, you know, I, I love the commentary that, that nobody forced these guys to take the money. Well, of course nobody forced them to take the money. But it, it starts at the top and it works its way through management and, and then into coaching. And the coaches only have the talent that they have. So to me, one of the surprising things that we hear about quite a bit is that when the NHL draft comes along, there's a ton of psychological testing that goes on. I'm just curious. I mean, they can't obviously do testing before they acquire somebody. But I do wonder if they look at the type of aptitude that these guys have and their ability to sustain a market where, where the pressure is pretty significant here. And it's not, to me, it, it's, it's not the media here is difficult. It's, it's the number of them and the amount of volume. You know, these guys, these guys finish a practice and they've got four or five reporters from four or five daily newspapers, countless number of people from radio stations, TV networks. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't be there. I think it's terrific. But I just don't know how many of them are used to having that type of attention on them, you know, 24-7, 8 to 10 months out of the year. And my sense is that, you know, bringing in the David Clarksons of the world, it was just set up to fail. And putting a guy like Tyler Bozak on the first line, he's been set up to fail. Well, again, Jonah, to, your, to your point on media, the added complexity in Toronto is that not only does the media report on the Maple Leafs um, and give you the content, but they've taken an ownership stake in it, and so they are now themselves the content. So it's, it's an interesting situation, um, and it's unique to a big market like Toronto, where you've got the media actually manufacturing content and then, and then covering it as well. It's, uh, it's, it's a complex situation, um, and, and you're kind of seeing some of the, the drawbacks of that play out right now. Yeah, so I don't know how much the fact that the Leafs are owned by two media companies are affecting the players as it relates to media coverage. I, I, listen, I think we can, we can have the debate as to whether media companies or these two specific media companies should be allowed to own this particular franchise or organization in this market. That, that's a different debate. I, I just think that it takes a special brand of guy to be able to sustain the fact that, you know, after a typical morning skate, you got 40 people there, and it's day in and day out, and it's the same questions over and over and over again. I mean, I cannot imagine what life would be like with these guys. They try and go, 
pick up a kid at school or they go to a, try and have a restaurant or catch a movie. I just think the, the temperature here is so hot. And it's not that the media is difficult. I just think it's ever-present and more present here than in other markets. I, I would make the point, guys, that um, whether it's this market or, well, I shouldn't say anywhere else, but in a market like this, I think most of the young athletes, and I've seen this in my professional work as I do a lot of work in the communications field and in the sports world with athletes, coaches, etc. Um, and and you, you know, I've seen this for, for decades. You, you come to a market like Toronto, you're a young athlete, you're just so thrilled to be here. It's exciting, it's positive, it's all the good things. And then somewhere along the way, something happens, right? Whether it's the attitude of some of the veterans that begins to sort of become pervasively negative on the young guys, and then they start taking on that the, the kind of, I don't want to say it's a toxic attitude, but a wary attitude. Uh, and then there's that first hint of criticism. And, and performance criticism is a difficult thing to handle sometimes. And then when it merges into the personal field, it, it becomes really difficult for people. Any one of us, would it would be you know, almost impossible to handle. So it, it, is, it is, you know, Elliot, you referenced it, whether, you know, whether the media situation, I, I, you know, whether that adds to it or not, I don't know. It is a point, you know, as Jonah said, that, that could be debated. But there's no question in this market, I think we've seen some, some good coaches We'd heard Ron Wilson the other day say, and whether one likes Ron Wilson or not as, as a coach, I think he's right. I talked about this on my blog long before he was he ever left here. Here's a guy with a sense of humor, a smart guy, a good coach who came here, and he l totally lost his personality. He was t he was constantly acerbic with the press, and it's wow. And so, but this is what he, and he said the other day. It's like he he was listening to clips of himself. I looked like that. I sounded like that. Yes, he did. And that's sad because we're, we've, we've had a number of people who I think arguably are good hockey people who've been general managers here, who've been coaches here, who've been players here, and one after another, they're just, and I guess Mike Babcock, Elliot, I'll throw it over to you, Mike Babcock's going to be the next guy who's going to be the savior and come in here and, and, and save everything. And I wonder if it's really possible because we've had some good hockey people before, before Babcock, and he's been in a great environment for the past 10 years in Detroit with one of the best owners and the best general managers and the best resources and system in the world that he's been able to help from a coaching standpoint. So I don't know, Elliot, what, your well, thoughts? Well, I'm going to look at the Babcock issue in two ways. One, if, you, if we bring in Mike Babcock, but there's no changes made to the actual player personnel, oh, yeah. I don't know to what benefit or to what end that gets us. The other thing with, with Mike Babcock, and it applies to all, all acquisitions of this team generally, because the media, and I guess the media being an extension of the fan base in Toronto, is so hungry for a Leafs story all the time, whether it's August or December 24th, it doesn't oh, matter. We're always, absolutely. Yep. The moment there's any kind of acquisition made, there has to be a story. And so there's this buildup of a coach, a GM, a president of a club, a player. There's almost an immediate lore created because there's a need to fuel this, this void for a story. And then the first moment there's adversity, that's now the story, and that takes on a life of its own and a lore. And so it's almost a situation where everything being brought into this club is set up to fail because you're built up really fast to a point where, uh, you know, to go back to your question about a young player coming into the team, it's impossible to ignore in this day and age your own media press, your, your press coverage. It's impossible. So you, you're, you're put in a position where you're going to buy your own lore a little bit just by the, the sheer story that's, that's taking life. And then the moment you, you have any kind of adversity, you're torn apart. 
You know, look at Jake Gardner. You know, there was, I remember very distinctly the comparisons to Scott Niedermeyer being made. Yes. And then people go so far as to say, well, you know, he's uncoachable, he's arrogant, he, you know, the free Jake Gardner thing. When you're being compared to a Hall of Famer at a young age, because you might possess some traits that are similar, it's hard probably not to buy into some of that press. And then it's hard not to be overly impacted by it when that same media organization is tearing you down on the flip side. So I think, you know, this, this kid's going to get Larry Murphy'd, unfortunately, it looks like, um, Gardner. And that, I think that's kind of what happens. So to bring that back to Babcock, you can bet that when he comes in here, he's going to be viewed as a savior and, 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 a, and a genius. But what happens when that first bit of adversity comes? I mean, that's, that's going to be very telling. It, he's going to be set up to fail if we don't change the bedrock of the team, the actual player personnel itself. No, that, that's an interesting point, Elliot. Jonah, I, I was going to say, and I, I don't know, Jonah, if you remember uh, or not, but I remember back in the late 70s when Scott Young, who is a, a, a wonderful, I think one of the best uh, writers in general, you know, he worked for the Globe and Mail for many years, he was a, a, a Leaf Beat reporter, then he became a, a public affairs, etc., columnist in the 60s, went back to the sports beat in, in, the, in the later 70s, and he, as I recall, uh, Jonah, he he resigned from the Globe after uh, on the over the issue of anonymous sources. There was stuff that was said about Punch Imlach. Some players quoted when Imlach had come back to be the GM the second time uh, before the seventy nine eighty season. And and Scott Young actually resigned. Now he had a relationship, you know, uh, with with Imlach. They had, you know they had written a, a book together, et cetera, and they they probably had a personal relationship as well. But he was standing up for certain principles at the time. I mean, that's nothing compared to the stuff you you see nowadays. I mean, anonymous sources, of course, that's that's you know how the media operate, whether they have to or not. That's how they operate. So, I mean, things are much more even intensive than they were back then. But I'm saying I've I've seen this kind of thing before. This is not new in Toronto. The Toronto market, when it comes to the Leafs, has always been omnipresent and has always been all over the Leafs. It's just more intense nowadays, especially, I would argue, with, with social media. I think that's that sort of put things over the top. I don't know how you feel, Jonah. Well, from my perspective, I mean, the battle cry that I hear a lot has to do with accountability. So what, what's... Are you, are you talking about the organization talking about accountability? No, no I'm talking about, yeah, the, I'm talking about athletes and teams right. talking about media accountability. Okay. So... You know, you, you take an issue as simple as, you know, the reported death of Pat Burns, right, where all of a sudden that gets tweeted very quickly, and it's erroneous. Um, you know, there's all kinds of the instantaneousness of the media today on social media, on sports talk radio. There, I think, you know, back in the day, if you will, when it was, was Young or any of these other writers, they went down to the rink with a pad of paper. Uh, they wrote things down. They went back to the office and had to hook up a typewriter, write the story, and get it published. And somebody probably was reading it before it went live. That isn't necessarily the case. Guys are, are, and gals are, are filing stories right from the location there. You know, you watch you know, the NHL trade deadline the other day. These, these folks are, are online. They're all carrying multiple devices in front of them. I'm not sure what breaks first, a, a trade or a move on the internet, i.e. Twitter, or the story actually gets written first. So the, the, the constant need to be first versus being right 
I mean, when was the last time somebody wrote something about a team in a game, for example, and there was a correction the next day? I mean, these guys—they're human. They make mistakes, but I, you know, the one cry that I hear a lot of is, "There's no real accountability." And when, and when you take a step back and you look at, you know, the proverbial idiots like us who are apparently in the basement, the bloggers. You know, the cry against bloggers before is that we didn't even have that. We could just publish whenever we wanted. It seems now that, especially what's going on in the last couple of days, the teams are now starting to complain that the actual media outlets themselves aren't holding their people accountable. Well, you know, I think you make a great a great point, Joan. I, it, but it's always been this this being first thing versus being right. It, it's, it's an interesting discussion for a lot of reasons, but I've always found it... Uh, I guess, you know, Sportsnet, TSN, and this is not knocking them, I'm just saying, I, you know, there seems to be this obsession, you know, with such and such a network broke this first, or uh, by what, two seconds? It, everybody's got sources nowadays. There are very few real breaking stories, it seems to me. And yes, they all get broken in some fashion, but everybody's got sources. Uh, are you surprised, Jonah, that the situation that happened uh, on on trade deadline day with the you know inadvertent tweet that got out you know I believe it was TSN are you surprised that sort of thing almost doesn't happen more often because of the very thing you're talking about this this haste to get any kind of news out there to 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 sort of satiate the need that 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 you know fans seem to have so yeah let me be the first to say and I don't know what the old biblical saying is about throwing stones and living in glass houses or what have you. But, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm on social media a lot. Guilty sure. guilty is charged, okay? But the Internet is a nasty place. Um, you know, let, let's look at the Kurt Schilling story of the past week where the guy puts on Twitter how proud he is of his daughter from getting to play college baseball. And the tweets about the tweets that this guy got are just filthy and really over-the-top personal. I believe it's an employee of the New York Yankees has now been fired for what he or she tweeted in response to it. So Twitter and, and Facebook and all these social media channels is an invitation to the broader cesspool to publish. And as I said, guilty as charged, I do it. Um, so am I surprised that it doesn't happen more often? I think it happens a lot. I think that it's not all the time that it ends up where somebody uh, ends up suing somebody over it. I think that's a little bit of a rarity. I think that it's even more rare because uh, the Leafs are owned by media companies. So I think that has a different element to it. But I think this happens quite a bit. And I think you know the downfall of the modern area where anybody can publish, uh, if they've got any type of device in front of them that's tied to, the, tied to a network, is that that's what you get. Oh, understood, Elliot. From your perspective, this week, when when the sort of things hit the fan, when it when it comes to or when it came to uh, Kessel speaking out as he did, uh, and I think it was the, the Leafs' assistant GM Kyle Dubas who 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 did sort of uh, deal with it when he was talking to some to some reporters. Would you have expected Shanahan to 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 stick himself in 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 front of that? moving situation and sort of take one for the team, defend his player? Maybe he did and I didn't see it, and I'm not knocking Shanahan. No, I'm just asking no, the I question. Don't, I, don't, I don't think that he has either. So what you were looking for was kind of a, a Wayne Gretzky, Brian Burke, State of the Union, come out and, and take the, the heat for the good of the overall organization. I think 
just wondering if it if it if it's something that he they that you know these because these people are sophisticated they and they have advisors they have people who tell them hey this is a big situation the you know the public yeah. is wa is watching what's the right thing to do so maybe it was decided that that Kyle would Kyle Dubas would would handle this and well, that, I mean that's interesting right and that that speaks to to Shanahan's role I I personally think that that would have if, if it were me in that role I would have done it I think you know the the image I'd want to portray. Um, were I in charge of the team, is the box stops with me. Um, but having having met Brendan at, at a conference and, and seeing him interact with people, I don't. He's just not that kind of guy. You know, as as a player, he was a guy that you know let his play do the talking. As a yep. president, I'm not sure how you do that, other than pointing to the you know the team's win loss record and saying like that's that's me doing the talking there. He's not uh, he's not a, a locker room stand up rah rah guy. He never was, and he, and he and I don't think he ever will be. Kyle Dubas, on the other hand, seems to be a, a media savvy kid. Uh, I shouldn't say kid; we're the same age. But he's he's clever, he's articulate, and I think that they're comfortable letting him occupy that space. Um, and as a potential GM in trading, I don't I don't think it's it's wrong for him to do that. But personally, if it, if it were me uh, in in Brendan's position, I would have. I would have come out ahead of that. Uh, so I am a little surprised. Yeah, I, I, and that, that's interesting. I mean, someone like, like a Burke probably would have stood up and, and said something. I'm not saying, again, it's right or wrong. Brian Burke probably would have, you know, defended his players, gone after the media. And again, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not suggesting right or wrong here. Uh, but okay, let's broaden it, guys. I, I mean, that situation this week is just one, the tip of the iceberg. And I talk can about. I, can, I, can I just raise one thing? Of course, Jonah. Yeah. So I, I wrote about this last night, and I, I think it's it's quite interesting. Um, about a week to ten days ago, Jeff Blair on the fan, his fan morning show, took a call. I think around the ten o'clock hour, where a caller called up and said, "Hey, Jeff, uh, I, I, I've heard this rumor." about Jeffrey Lupul and Dion Phaneuf's wife. What do you think? And uh, is it true? Now, we all know that radio stations have a dump button. There's a five, seven, 10 second delay. Uh, so it, it, it passed through that, and a three, four minute discussion ensued between Blair and the caller, where they discussed it, and Blair said, admitted that he had heard the rumor, wasn't commenting on its veracity or not, but he did discuss it. Uh, not very many people are talking about that. So, I mean, I'm not really quite sure. I mean, if Brian Burke were here, I can imagine that not shortly after that tweet got aired on TV, uh, Ty pulled to the side, we would have seen Brian on TV absolutely lambasting the media. There is no question in my mind that he would have done. Um, I mean, we all remember his, his the Toronto Suns not good for anything but other than being at the bottom of a birdcage. That's the role that he's that he has that he took when he was here. Um, Pat Burns had no problem doing that. Ron Wilson went after certain guys. Uh, Pat Quinn had no problem doing that. Uh, Dave, but Jonah, it, isn't it that alleged hubris of Brian Burke? that got him shown the door? Like, wasn't that what the issue was, that he was too abrasive, that he occupied too much space, that he made himself the story, and that kind of ushered him out? Not to say that I disagree with it. Well, so, so I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. The question was, 
should Shanahan have done it? And I'm not quite sure. I'm personally, as a fan, bothered by his silence this year. I think he's been way too quiet. I personally think he's ultimately responsible for this mess. I think, once again, the Leafs are going to be bad, but not bad enough. And I, I think that's his fault. I think the changes that he should have made, uh, that, he sh that he's been making now, should have been made earlier and last summer. Uh, they should be big. The, the team should be closer to Buffalo and Arizona. Um, so I'm disappointed that he hasn't been more vocal on this topic. Six of one, half a dozen the other. I'm not, I'm not sure that him coming out and lambasting the media would have had any effect or not. Okay, guys. I'm gonna. I, as I said before, I want to broaden this a little bit. Although I think I think this is you know excellent discussion and, and hopefully of interest to our audience. Um, so a trivia question, not really trivia. I'm just teeing it up that way. Elliot, you first. Who? What was the last big name free agent that signed with the Leafs that you would remember? You were probably in grade school. Well, you know what? I'm going to give a little bit of a different answer because when David Clarkson signed with the Leafs, that was kind of a big deal. Mm, okay. I accept that as an answer. You know that's not where I'm going, of course, because I don't think any of us thought he was going to be... Um, I mean, he was a solid player. I mean, yeah, everybody, you know, we got sort of drawn into he the 30 goal season. He was a coveted player in that market. In that summer, that was a coveted player. Sure, coveted player. Uh, I, what I'm getting at, since you didn't give me the answer I wanted, I'm going to throw <laughs> it over to John, <laughs> Jonah. No, but, you know, I'm just joshing. But yeah, yeah, the yeah. point is, when's the last time, guys, that a star, a real considered star, I don't even want to use their term superstar, signed as a free agent, summertime free agent with the Leafs? What would be your opinion on that? I know what mine is, but... So the first name that enters my mind, and if there's three names that enter my mind, and I can't tell you who came first or last, but they're of the same kind of era, and that's, or four, actually. It's, it's Curtis Joseph, yeah. Gary Roberts, uh, Shane Corson, Joe Neuendijk. No, okay. no, no, no. And the, one that was, and the one that was still in his prime was Curtis Joseph, and that's the name yeah. I was looking for. Not that there's a wrong answer here. All of those are great. I mean, Gary Roberts, what goodness, you know, Shane Corson throwing his body in front of pucks, you know, Alex killing penalties. McGillney. McGillney. But again, McGillney, I would, I would argue, you're, you're right on all counts, guys, but they were all on the other side, well on the other side of 30, and McGillney had, had I mean, as nice as a player as he was in Toronto, uh, you know, until he gave the puck away against Carolina in overtime, and I'm still bitter, but that was only, you know, 13 years ago. It's okay. Um, McGillney was a wonderful player, but they were older. I think Curtis Joseph's the guy. My, I guess what I'm leading to, gentlemen, is that you know free agents do not come here. They they simply do not unless they are are tremendously overpaid. Elliot, you first. Why is that? You would think that this, and because you can guess what I'm getting at here. Why is that? This is the best hockey market in the world. If you're a good player, you play with heart. We will talk about you and remember you forever. I can name every guy in the 1962 Maple Leaf team, the guys that played two minutes a night for 15 games. What about Elliot? You know, why do do the Leafs never sign uh, star free agents? Why do they never want to come here? Well, aside from being surrounded by a team that we've deemed to have a rotten core and they're no prospect of winning, and aside from an aggressive media that we've said sets people up to fail. Poor weather and high taxes. I mean, at the end of the day, players are people. 
uh, and they have families and they have considerations beyond just hockey. And if I can go somewhere and pay low taxes and have sunbelt weather, that's a strong consideration. So, I mean, are we an attractive city? Absolutely. But it depends on personal interests of the player. And I can see a lot of reasons why I might go to the southern states and have a low-key hockey existence where my chances of playing good hockey and being in the, the playoffs are as good or better, where I'm not paying a lot of taxes and where I can wear shorts to the rink. Who, I mean, that all of that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, Jonah, from your perspective, why aren't people coming to uh, running to sign with the Leafs? Because there's plenty of money here most summers. So I'm going to answer a question with a question. When was the last time there was a star who actually hit the free agent market? I mean, Elliot, Elliot raised a very good point. David Clarkson was a big name, not a star. Um, so, you know, most of the guys that you'd actually call stars don't hit the free agent market. Listen, I think for the most part, you have to assume that the money's equal, that they're not necessarily going to get more money here because of the salary cap. So if the money's equal, what's the next most important thing to these guys? And, and so is it, you know, ability to go out with the wife and kids to a movie, the ability of quality of life? I think climate probably does kind of come into it. But I'd like to think, and maybe this is just me being silly, I'd like to think that they actually want a chance to win. And I'm not sure how many people can objectively look at this Maple Leaf team at any time over the last, I don't know, five, seven years, and said, yeah, yeah, I want to be part of that because those guys look like they're going to win. And we talk about the guys who did sign. I'm pretty sure Cujo came first. Uh, when they got the other guys, they came later. And just, you know, flip a switch for a second to the Blue Jays, right? Like, they had a pretty good core before they started getting the Molitors, the Stewarts, the Winfields. Those right. guys were the cherry on top of the cake that took them over, right? They had a good core folks here who said, that team is going to win. I don't think anyone looks at the Maple Leaf and says, oh yeah, i got to join this car. Th these guys are going to make it. Uh, which brings me to my next question, guys, which is, that being the case, there is no savior. Uh, maybe a coaching situation, again, we can discuss whether uh, you know, uh, a Babcock would, would be a singular difference maker I really don't know. As Elliot said before, or Jonah, maybe it was you. If if they don't change the pieces around in the organization and on the roster, I, you know, you can bring back Toe Blake, Scotty Bowman, uh, you know, the best coaches in history. I'm not sure it's going to make much of a of a difference here. But uh, so if if so, it's free agency is ne hasn't been the winning ticket for the Leafs. Uh, and even when they've tried to go into that in recent years, you know, it's more the you know the third, fourth line guys that come in, they do a nice job for you, and then they move, they move. So it's not that's not it. So what is going to be the key? Is it going to be the the draft, which it is, you know, in in many teams in many sports. I mean, you build with the draft, then you add pieces, as Jonah just said. When you are a good team, you add those things that put you over the top. Uh, what do the Leafs, in your view, you know, have to do? And are they? And then tied in. Sorry to ask a long question again, Elliot. But and tied into that, will there be enough people who not only will want to come here, forget free agents, but they'll want to stay here? Like after the mess of this season and the number of issues that have happened in Toronto, the media. I mean, Declan from Maple Leaf Hot Stove sent us this long list of issues that have arisen in the media this year. Just just this season. It's not just that the season has gone off the rails. 
there have been so much negative publicity and various issues around the Leafs. Anybody out there must be going, thank God I'm not playing, I'm not with the Leafs right now. So it, it's not that, uh, as much as I love the Leaf legacy, been following it since the late 50s, this doesn't appear to be a, a, a destination people want to be at or stay here. That's the problem, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, to answer your question, and it may, it may take me a bit, but this team, and I, I think, I mean, we, we know that they are saying all the right things and they've arrived at this point, but they have to hit reset. I mean, they've got to clear out the nucleus that exists, but for a few pieces that you've identified, like a Morgan Riley as being, this is a staple, this is exactly what we want our team to embody both in, in character and play. So you identify a few core pieces, you clear it out, and then, to your point, it goes back to the draft and putting together a development system. I think when they had Spot in the AHL and previous to him, Aikens, you had a very nice development system in the AHL, and I think that has continued under the present organization. I think hiring Hunter will be you know, great. I think Dubas is going to do a great job. I've met him, and he's like on the ball. So putting together the draft and development system leads me into the next part, and that's when you draft an 18-year-old kid, you've got him as an RFA, assuming he starts playing right away until, you know, 24. He's probably here till 25. You've got them locked in for a significant period of time as an asset. If you're doing the right things to put together a proper nucleus in this city so that there's not this corrosive atmosphere wherever we say the, the blame lies, whether it's ownership, management, or within the actual players itself, if you completely hit the reset button, you've drafted well and you've developed well, Assuming those players have come through that system and knowing that Toronto is a hockey town, then I think you're going to have players want to stay because you've put all those pieces in place. Right now, I don't know why they would want to stay. You know, if I'm if I'm still here and I'm looking at the team and, and the future we're going through, and I'm 27, 28 years old, I'm I'm calling my agent. And I'm saying like, let's look at options. I want out of here. Right. But like I said, you hit the reset and you build properly through the draft. I think you can create an organization where will retain talent. Uh, Jonah, from, from your perspective, I, I mean, are, are we in a situation here where, um, you know, Ellie just made, I think, a lot of good points about, you know, the, the basics of how you you reset, try to, to reload the organization, whatever we want to call it. Um, is it doable from, from your perspective? It, it, it seems like we have you know, sort of seen variations again on this movie before. We've, As I said, we've had a lot of good hockey people, some good hockey players. Uh, you know, is it, is, it, is it still possible? Is there a reason why you, they can't build, Jonah, a successful winning culture, to use that overused term, here in, in Toronto? Well, yeah, listen, I think it's possible. And I don't remember one of the talking heads or someone on one of the radio shows and he was talking about the New York Islanders. So to me there's there's, there's three things that are really critical. Uh, one is, as Elliot said, you got to draft properly. Um, two, you have, to, you have to be patient and you have to be religious about being patient. And when they were talking about the Islanders, you know, with the, with the exception of Tavares, who came up right away, their kids all stayed in the minors until they were absolutely ready to come up. Thank you. Thank and, and you. And that Thank is, you know, uh, there's no guarantees and we don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, go back through the 70s, 80s, 90s, now the 2000s, 
of kids the Leafs have absolutely ruined by, by coming up too early. So it's being religious about being patient. If you look at the Red Wings, the reason that they're successful, in my mind, is that their kids play in the farm system forever. And the last piece, which is almost as important as the first two, and you're going to laugh, and that is you got to be a little bit lucky. Like, I think you got to be able to, to, to find those gems in the draft. Maybe you got to win one, one or two more trades. You got to be, but, and, and maybe you win the lottery. But for the most part, you've got to be religiously patient. And that means that you're going to the fans and saying, we're not raising ticket prices. We admit it. We're, it's going to be a challenging year, but the team's going to work hard and we're going to start instilling the right principles of a winning franchise. And no, we don't expect a Stanley Cup. And no, we don't expect playoffs, but we expect the team to compete hard every night and to show this type of improvement along the way. To me, they've never had, they have not had that for a long, long time. And it goes back to the old Chuck, uh, Cliff Fletcher draft schmaft attitude, right? You know, eventually you pay the popper and, and, you know, it's great that we've got these coaches down in the mines where they've got no assets. Well, it, you know, to your point, to your point, Jonah, about, about, you know, rushing players, this has been one of my pet concerns with the Maple Leaf organization forever. I mean, I can speak to Jim Benning and, went, you know, I can name all these guys and I won't bore you with all the names, but, you know, there were three kids, you know, that were rushed into the system, and including Jim Benning in the late, you know, now the, the, the GM in Vancouver in the late 70s, early 80s. Gary Nyland, I mean, Al Iafrady, I mean, the list, you know, yes. Luke it has happened. Shen. Who? Luke Shen. No, absolutely, absolutely, and always, always, you know, and, and you know, anyway, Kadri, I mean, I know some people like the way he was handled. I thought he was on a yo-yo. He should have just spent two full years with the Marlies, flat out, no talk of him being a savior, coming up, scoring goals because they were in a scoring slump. You earn your way. You learn in the in, with the Marlies. You presume you have a really good coach there who's going to teach them about being a professional, and that's what you do. And we haven't done that anywhere near enough. And and you know, I even wonder with Morgan Riley. I think it's great that you know he was good enough to play, but I was among those that was wait, let him develop. And I I still not sure it wouldn't have been a bad idea to have him spend more time with the Marlies because as fine a young player as he is, he's now been in an environment that is not ideal for the last two years. And those those things are not are not fantastic either. I, I should probably give myself the wrap-up sign, but a couple more things. Elliot, let me let me start with you. Yeah. The NHL has become a league where now uh, we end up, t you know, and I was afraid years ago I used to tell friends, this is what's going to happen in the NHL. We're going to end up talking about bad contracts, bad contract. Here we are. We're now a league where half the time we get a player got to sign him, got to sign him, sign him two years later, fans are saying, oh, gee, why did, you know, why did the Leafs or whatever team X, you know, do that, sign that guy? It's not just the David Clarksons. I mean, it, all kinds of contracts that become bad contracts almost, it's like buying a new car and two days later they're worth, you know, half of what you paid for it. Uh, you know, are we just in an era? And again, it ties into this whole thing, social media, the pressure in markets like this. You know, the GMs here have to go out and, and, and rebuild the team right away. Will will teams like the Leafs ever be able to get past that, or, or are quote-unquote bad contracts just going to be the way things are nowadays? Well, I think with bad contracts, it's a function of something that Jonah mentioned earlier, which is that true superstars don't go to market. And so there's always going to be teams willing to spend 
very close to top money to attract talent. But the problem is the, the talent that's available to attract isn't the top talent. So by necessary implication of economics, you end up spending too much on talent that's just not worth it. You know, like Steven Stamkos is probably never going to hit the market. And if he does, it's going to be when he's no longer top talent. Exactly. But you know Toronto will chase him anyway because that's the best you're going to be able to buy. So that I think that's where the bad contracts come from. And the other issue is that the National Hockey League and, and, and all leagues really are operating on a system where you assume linear year-over-year -year growth on the salary cap. And I, I had wrote about this issue a while back for Maple Leafs Hot Stove and, and called it relative compensation, that $7 million this year is not $7 million three years from now because, it, because of the inflationary effect. The issue we're also facing is that with the Canadian dollar getting absolutely slammed, and then the revenue model for the National Hockey League being impacted at the same time and thereby suppressing the cap, contracts that didn't look like they were going to be as bad might be pretty bad. And, and, and that's a landscape that nobody was really prepared for. So I, th there's two issues there leading to bad contracts, and I think the first that I addressed is probably the more prevalent cause. But some economic factors you, you, I mean, you just can't control or predict. Uh, and I don't think that there's really a way to escape this unless you allow players to become UFAs you know, really young, um, and so more of them come out. Well, and that's not what the, the league will fight that, obviously. They don't want guys at 22 to be total free agents. And to your earlier point, you're absolutely right. Some of the guys that the Leafs have signed as free agents in the summers over the past decade have been some of the so-called, quote-unquote, top guys available because there have not been, you know, the superstars. You know, we're not seeing Drew Doughty uh, well, exactly. available. Or whomever. So that that's a fair point, absolutely. But th as you so kind of uh, suggested, though, I think you end up though with pay overpaying guys. But you see this in Everly. You see this in the NFL. You see it everywhere. It's like, oh, it's a it's a weak year for cornerbacks in the NFL. So this guy's a free agent. So he's going to get overpaid. And that's exactly what happens. There's always one team willing to way overpay somebody to make sure they make that splash and they get that player or whatever the case might be. So, Jonah, from your standpoint, let's begin to, you know, sort of wrap this up. Uh, if you put yourself in the shoes of, of a Leaf, Toronto Maple Leaf fan right now, the end of a pretty dismal season, uh, Jonah, hope, no hope, Shanahan is the answer, Shanahan may be the answer. Uh, this market, you can still build a winning team, as you suggested a few moments ago, in this market. Uh, you know, you gave us sort of a simple three-point plan. Uh, your thoughts, Jonah? Well, to me, it, it's about amassing assets. So he's brought in a front office that is that specializes in drafting talent. So to me, the question, the million-dollar question is: Is he insulated enough from ownership to to do what needs to be done? And does he have the power to say this is actually going to take three to five years to set up the foundation? And that's the question, because if he does, then I don't know why there's any evidence to suggest that he's not the right guy. I mean, the question's going to become, so hypothetically speaking, let's say they don't win the lottery, and they get the third, fourth, or fifth pick. And July 1st rolls around, and whoever this year's Jeff Finger is now available, you know, does he go out and spend stupid money on a guy who has no business earning that amount of money, which the fans automatically tie money to performance. You know, if he goes out and he nibbles to, to bring in character guys because he's got to spend to a floor because he's ripped out the heart of the team, 
from a contract perspective, then that's okay. I mean, to me, it's about small steps and accumulating assets and then letting them develop properly. If he does it and he has the ability to do it, then I think he can succeed. If not, it's deja vu all over again. And Elliot, from your standpoint, it, it, putting yourself in the shoes of a Leaf fan, hope, no hope. Oh, I, you know what? I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, but I think if, if what I'm hearing from the team is, is sincere in that they finally recognized the need to clear it out, to start over, to draft properly, and to build a team that way, I, I, I'm willing to watch, and I'm, I'm feeling optimistic. And I think the, the thing that Toronto fans don't get enough credit for is that if this team came out and said, we're going to stink, we are going to put a system in place, it's not going to be fun to watch, we are not going to rush our young super kids, we're going to leave them in the O or the Q uh, or the WHL for as long as it takes and the AHL thereafter, but we're going to have a, a plucky, hard-working team that will probably lose close games um, more often than it wins. I would support that, and I think a lot of Toronto fans would, especially if, like Jonah said, they came out and said, we're not raising prices this year. You know, we recognize that we suck. So let's, like, if that were put in place, I would support the team, and I'd feel good about it watching that development curve, and I think a lot of Leafs fans would. You know, it's in, it's, it, it could well be that there are a lot of people, Elliot, that would have the patience, uh, if it, as you say, if it was stated as such, uh, and declared as such, and 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 you know, I think I think Jonah just made a good point as well that that if if Shanahan continues to bring the the, the kind of uh, resources together and the and the staff people that he has in place who are talent evaluators and they can not just through the draft but they can identify and develop because I last thing I'm going to end on is I think it's about developing players. I think you can draft. Well, if, if this organization does not do a better job of, and I know we can all define development differently, but I think we can all agree, or most LEAF supporters, I think would agree that developing players is key. And you just talked about it or alluded to it, Elliot, a moment ago, letting them stay, whether it's in the queue, in Europe, whatever it is, there's no rush. There's no, it doesn't have to happen overnight. Uh, and, and if they develop their young players, their young defensemen, and all that stuff properly, and there's no rush, and they get them used to being professionals and in this market and what that means, and that includes understanding as best one can the media and social media and the, and the pressures that exist in a, in a big hockey market like this, then maybe there is hope after all. We'll see. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, Michael, because we're on that topic. What do you think about Nylander being in the AHL right now? Well, how, remind me how old he is. He's 18. He was just drafted. Oh, you know, I, I'm <laughs> uh, I'm against the eight. I mean, you're a lawyer, and and you know, uh, you know, my dad told me, and he was not a lawyer. My dad told me decades ago that somebody's going to challenge the all these systems in various sports that, that prohibit kids from playing and whatever team they they want when they're 18. And he was kind of prophetic. We haven't got that. We haven't got free agency at 18, but he's prophetic about a lot of things. My opinion is I'd rather, in most cases, 18-year-olds not be playing uh, professional hockey. I'm not a, just personally, Elliot, a, a fan. I, I, you know, Dennis Potvin played like 100 years with the Ottawa 67s, and it didn't hurt him You know, when he came up to the Islanders in, in 1973, and he had a Hall of Fame career. Now, Bobby Orr, yeah, you know, if you're Bobby Orr, if you're Bobby Hull, it, 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 sure, you you know, you can do it. So, 
right now, I guess I'd rather have him there than with, I'd rather have him with the Marlies than with the Leafs. If that's what you're asking, that's what I'd ask. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. The simple answer is I'd rather he be with the Marlies than the Leafs right now. That's my opinion. Wouldn't it be better that he was still in Sweden? Yes, yes. I would rather he be not in, not in this situation where he, every move he makes is going to be analyzed and discussed on Twitter, and that's just my opinion. Uh, that's my view. I mean, he well, seems like the real deal. You know. I'll disagree. No, go for it. Absolutely. No, You'd rather. So, so, so it sounds, and, and I listen. I don't watch a lot of Marley's games. Uh, it sounds to me like they were actually pretty concerned about his lack of development over in Europe. And the the question is, is is he playing at the best level for him to develop? And it sounds like I happen to believe that. The, the young people that Shanahan has brought in or the new people that he's brought in to develop talent know what they're doing. And if they've made the assessment that he needs to develop here, he can't go to the O because he's, he's European and that's where he was playing. So if the best place for him to develop is here, then I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I they didn't pull him from, from Guelph up to the Marlies. They pulled him from Europe where it sounds like things weren't going the way they were. He's not under the spotlight as much as, as as much as some people like to suggest. Yeah, I, you know, Elliot, your thoughts there? Well, my my concern is not that he can't perform at that level. It's just that the AHL is a normally like a, it's a hard, hard hitting league. And having watched this kid in the juniors, I mean, he's taller than they had enlisted at the draft, but he's he is really lanky, and it would be a real shame if at 18 years old. Some 27-year-old bruiser crushes him in the boards, you know, hurts a vertebrae, damages his knees, and that's it. You know, the career is never going to be taking off at the same trajectory. That's my concern. If if they think he's going to develop best there, fine. But you can't account for you know like a a Jeff Finger who's down in the minors because he's been demoted and he's trying to do anything he can to get back up and, and crushes a kid in the corners because it shows he's still got it, uh, and then the kid's career is finished. So. I'd, I'd rather see him playing in Europe one more year or one more rest of this season of dangling and then reassess in the offseason. But what's done is done, and I'll, I'll try to catch him in the playoffs if they can, if they can eke it out. Yeah, I, I think these are these are tough questions, and I and you know uh, I guess fans will hope you know will trust the Leaf brass to have done the right thing. I'm just not a fan of rushing. I don't care how good a player is, uh, especially into the, into the Leaf environment because they're not going anywhere right now. So I I think development is something that he's not going to be a savior. And just as I said, I, I wouldn't have been miserable if Morgan Riley spent more time, you know, you know, before joining the Leafs. In any event, listen, guys, uh, this was fun. I enjoyed it very much. As I mentioned before, you know, we've touched on some topics. It's been a long season for, for the Leafs. Uh, has not gone the way, you know, I'm sure the organization would have wanted. Uh, certainly not the way fans were expecting. But we covered some ground, and I'm sure we could spend another three hours covering other topics. But let's wrap it up. Elliot Sakuchi, great of you to join us. I know you've been on before. It's great to have you back on again. Jonah, I was really pleased to have you on. I appreciate your perspective as well. Thanks for, for making this uh, an engaging conversation tonight. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Listen, Elliot and Jonah, thanks very much. And to everybody listening tonight or who will listen on the rebroadcast, we appreciate that you've taken the time. Hopefully we've addressed some of the issues that that, uh, that you wanted to hear from us. Uh, and no doubt Alec and Declan and, and the guys at the Maple Leaf Hot Stove, fantastic site, uh, will pull us together again maybe before the end of the season to cover off further Leaf topics. Again, 
Thank you, everybody. This is Michael Langlois from Vintage Leaf Memories signing off for the Maple Leaf Hot Stove. Good night, everybody. Take care. We'll see you next time.